morning. Let's all open to Romans 8, 8, 28. And those that set their clocks ahead prematurely will be late. So, yeah, next weekend. Romans 8, 28. We are studying the will of man, uh, and in light of that, the will of God. And one of the things we looked at last week was Romans, we started with Romans 8.28 about uh, the, at least setting up the understanding of it. This morning we're going to get a fuller understanding, but sometimes people take this as the magic elixir verse. If you were in the, in the Old West and you had a little wagon to help people out, you would give them snake oil and Romans 8.28. So we've got to be careful how we quote verses, but we do want to get a good understanding of what's going on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and ask you this morning that your uh, spirit help enable us to understand the word, that we that the study that we've done and look at uh, not only be beneficial to our souls, but we can usually use it with within life and the circumstances that often beset us. And Father, we thank you for the beauty of the day. As we see the season starting to change a little bit, we thank you for all here this morning. We also lift up prayers for those that are sick or dealing with um, other issues that are in their lives, Father. We thank you again for this time as we dedicate it to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's just read Romans 8.28. And um, I know there's not a, a ton of people here to do a Gallup poll, but if you have a King James Version, I believe the way it's phrased is a little wrong. I'm reading from the New American Standard, and it doesn't matter. We're going to go through the words and get a grasp of what's being said. So I'm not condemning any version. Um, the only thing I ever kind of annoys me is when somebody says King James is the only Bible. The problem I have with that is probably very obvious because King James Bible would mean what? You have to speak English to read it, first of all, or Old English to understand it. But there's nothing wrong with that. But the majority of people in the world do not have a grasp of the King James English. So uh, you can't, we cannot make it the only version of the Bible. Uh, and they all have issues because we're going from one language to another. So I'm reading for the New American Standard just for those that may have a different version. Mine says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So um, I think we left off last week doing the exegesis of this. In other words, we're going to walk through some of the words, discuss some of the words and get some understanding from them and then tie it all back together and put it into action every day we we have life, okay? Because this is one of those verses we really need to not only know, but see it in action. Uh, so we're going to start with we know. I think I ended last week with it, so this may be a tad bit of repetition, but repetition is really good because most of you fall asleep towards the end of class, so now we'll start the class with it. No, I'm just kidding. Here's the good part, though. I do know, and I am taking role of who falls asleep. No. Nothing wrong with scaring the sheep, is it? Okay. We know. Um, Paul uses this word um, a lot, this phraseology, too. Because uh, what Paul wants to do is say, you as believers have a common basis of understanding. You have common knowledge. So if you were to write down a list of things, what are common to the Christian life as far as knowledge goes, you should have the we knows nailed. Kind of get what I'm saying? So this is one of those things, if you don't know this, you need to know this. If you do know this, you need to repeat it. If you do know this, you need to use it in life. So, And these are the things we 
we should know as the foundation stones of the Christian life. So when you go through any of Paul's writings and he says, we know, he's saying, I know, therefore you should know, and if you don't, I'm going to teach you anyway because we're going to put it in Scripture. Okay? Uh, and, and he also condemns those that don't have certain knowledge that they should. And he says, don't be ignorant brethren. So we don't want to be the, you know, the first church of the united ignorant brethren. We want to know certain things. Kind of get what I'm saying? In life, though, in life in general, there are things you cannot not know. You should know certain things. So we, we would call that what? Common sense. So we want to add those two things together. If you want to lead a common sense Christian life, there are things you need to know. Uh, assume this. The moment you're saved, you don't know anything, especially about the Christian life. So there's some things you need to know. Paul took eight chapters to get here. Kind of get what I'm saying? He didn't say, turn to Romans 8.28, and that's going to be the first verse we're going to deal with in Romans. He went through Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, so on and so forth. Uh, so what he's doing is, is basically opening up this verse uh, with a very emphatic word. We know is in the emphatic position in Greek, so you can like embolden it. We know. These are the things we know. Uh, this is the basic, again, the basic foundational stone. This is going to be a concept that we are to know, that should be known, that should be known to other believers. And if they don't know this, or if they misuse it, we need to teach them what it's saying. Uh, it's not giving license to do whatever you want so that God will make it all work out. That's not what it's saying. Okay? Um, and, and I think we need to know what this verse is saying, a good strong understanding, so that we can not only quote it, and be acquainted with it, but we can properly use it. We, we good so far? Okay. So the word here in Greek is oida, O-I-D-A, and I think I said that as we closed last week. Um, not only that, the word oida has to do with knowledge, not by experience, but based on fact. In other words, are there facts you know in life about the Christian life? Are there facts? Not because you've learned them, uh, you know, father may say to his son, I want you to learn these things so you'll know these things. So father sits down and teaches him or gives him uh, some understanding of life and an experience and says, well, now son, that you, you know, wrecked the car, here's what we have to do to get it repaired and make reparations to whoever we hit. And you've got to earn, your, you know, there's things in life you have to learn by experience. Uh, but this is based on fact. Not only that, it's basic fact. In other words, if we were taking math, and I think I said this last week, one plus one is two. What's the debate? I know new math may want to debate with certain things, but I don't know if we could debate. Two, you know, one plus one is two. Two plus two is four. Basic facts of math. So it's factual. And since it's emphatic, here's what it could say in the very first words of the sentence. Okay? We emphatically know this fact. We emphatically know this fact. Um, so now we know this fact. Now we got to go off on what is a strong understanding of this because if you read the King James Version, and again, I'm not trying to belittle a version, it seems like God is impersonal. Okay? That the things are working themselves out. Uh, and I want to be careful with that. Uh, so I'm going to give you an understanding. When we look at the phrase, all things work together, the idea, or all things to work together that are in the New American Standard, um, I want you to understand the word panta, P-A-N-T-A, I know this is going to get technical, which means all, 
It's just as easy as that. Um, and I always have a problem with the word all, don't you? What does all mean? I mean, some of us say that's everything. Um, and, I, and it could mean that. And sometimes it could mean all in the circumstance, all in the situation. It, you know, he's, uh, he's not going to work out some of the hideous things that we would think about, but I think it means everything. Everything that's go- showing is God's control over everything. Uh, and I really want us to understand verse 28 is not about you and me, it's about God. Okay, you're with me so far. Okay? Uh, so that'll help change some of the ideas. The word there is plural. And the reason I'm saying that is because it can be nominative. Nominative means it's the subject. Or it can be accusative. It means the object, uh, the, the object of the subject, of the, uh, plural object, uh, plural accusative means it could be the object of the sentence. A direct object. Um, here's what happens with all, all, but just the word all, King James makes all the subject. The subject is not all. Uh, and, and we'll look at that as we, as we go through this. Um, but the verb together, work together, it's really neat how Greek is. Uh, it's singular, so it doesn't even match. I said all is plural. The verb is singular. They don't match. Kind of get what I'm saying? They've got to be of the same gender to match. So, uh, so when we say all things, they work together. That's a wrong understanding of the sentence. Kind of get what I'm saying so far? Plural, plurals and singulars, and, and uh, they don't go together like that. Not only that, the verb, works together, is in the present active indicative. That means this is a continuous action verb that God is producing this action. Are you causing all things to work together? Do all things... They themselves cause the action. You can't do that because it's, it's, it's somebody's got to carry the action. And who's the subject? The subject is God. And, it, and we see that because we know that God causes all things. So the New American Standard Version nails that uh, as far as that's concerned. Um, so God causes all things. Uh, so we'll be, we got to make sure we got the subject right. And what, is, what's, what direction is he taking these all things to? So it says, God, we know, emphatically know, because it's factual, because God does these things, that God causes all things to work together for. The next word for is so important, because there's so many different Greek words for for. This is the Greek word eis, E-I-S. I know this sounds so technical. Bear with me. I'll tie it all together in a minute. Eis is a directional word. Four is usually a conclusion or a reason, and I think that's probably a, 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 a it's nothing wrong with the word, we just got to know it's in the direction. So God is uh, causing all things to work together in the direction of what? What's the next word? The direction of what? Toward good. Now here's the interesting thing is, who's good? You know, you, because most people claim it and say, well, God will work it out so that it all works out for my good. That's a wrong understanding. God's causing all things to work together for His good. Because here's the three reasons why we have to understand this so that um, we can take these little messes in life, these circumstances in life, and God can take them, all these little messes, and turn them around for His good. So first of all, God is the source of good. Do you know that? God is the source of good. You are not. Secondly, God is also the definer of good. God is also the definer of good. 
So when we talk about what is good, we have to go to God for his definition and his understanding, uh, which also helps us with something else that I think is important, is when we look at this word, that God does it for good, so that it all goes direction towards good, who's involved in that? Well, we are, absolutely. So God's doing it because he's personally involved with us. Now, here's where this came off of. Last week, we talked a little bit about Joseph. What did we say that was Joseph's key to understanding that God was with him, right? And how did Joseph know that? I don't know if Joseph verbally said that until the end, but God kept saying, I was with him, I was with him, I was with him. And we saw that from chapter 37 on of Genesis, that God was with him. Um, But we can say this with the fact. God is with us. Um, A lot of people go through these things in life, and the first thing they say, well, where was God when? We shouldn't say that. We should say God is here and helping bring about his good through whatever. Uh, And that gives us a whole different mindset. You with me? Um, and, And he's doing it to work out his good. Well, what's his good? Look at the very next verse, 29. Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So one of the goods he's looking for is working out that we can be conformed to the image of his son. So when we say things like, oh, I should lead a perfect life, nothing should ever happen to me, and should never go through circumstances, what did Jesus go through? Now, you're not going to go to the cross and pay for the sins of the world. But Jesus went through some issues, and he was always doing what? Focused on his Father's will. Kind of get where this is going? Are we focused on the circumstances of life, or are we focused on what God's trying to produce through us and in us that will promote his good? Are we, are we okay with this so far? Uh, I think it's interesting to see that, because what happens is, when we have things happen in our life, our tendency as human beings is to focus on the things and the circumstances. Yes or no? You know, you, you don't know someone else's pain until you walked in their shoes. People will say, you don't know what I'm going through, and I really don't want to share it because I'm going through a lot of different things in my life. Well, guess what? You're not alone. You've never been the only one. But if you focus on things and circumstances, uh, uh, you're getting the small picture. You're living life with a small picture. The big picture says, do you know what's behind the circumstances? Do you know what's behind the things that are driving your life and other people's lives, where you've gotten to, where you've gotten to right now? Do you, do you, can you see that? Do you see what's happening with the big picture? Uh, God is doing th- uh, things in order to conform us to the image of His Son. Now, that is not um, a magical elixir. That's an understanding biblically that we should all have, that we know God's doing things to conform us to his son. And we shouldn't say, woe is me, can't believe these things are happening, um, why doesn't this happen to someone? I've led a good life, I shouldn't have any of these bad things happen. And people want promises that if you do good things, you'll, be, you'll have good things happen to you. Um, I'm here to inform you that we live in a sin-filled world, and things happen to even believers, and sometimes... This is a whole different class. Sometimes it's because you as a believer need spiritual discipline. And God's got to discipline you. Sometimes it's just to make you grow. And sometimes it's just to aid you in being conformed into Christ's image. Um, 
we are, we are, and understand this. If we have a hard time, things in life are happening, go back to Romans 1 through 3. It'll help define what causes all these bad things in life. It's called what? Sin. And if you read what goes on in there, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't keep us from having, uh, repercussions of sin. Uh, I'm gonna say this nicely. Every one of us in this room will die if we don't get raptured from sin. Sin's not going to be, in other words, we're not going to have the, the sin unto death, per se, but there is sin unto death, because why? The effects of the fall says you're going to physically die. And if you make it to 930 like Adam did, good, you're still dying. 969 like Methuselah, I don't want to see what you look like, but you're still going to die. I think there was a Chinese or Japanese gentleman that died last week, it was 112. They didn't show pictures. I don't know why, but I'm just thinking, he didn't look so good. Okay? Because there is a certain longevity to us, but we're all going to die because of the effects of sin. Okay? Uh, and, and we know there's certain things that God does hate in Proverbs uh, 6, 16 and following. Uh, so the believer has two views of life. A believer has two views of life. Um, we can, and that's what Romans 8.28 does. It says and at the end of the verse... To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we have two views of life. We can view it from the human side. And our human side is to love God. I think that's throughout all the Bible. To love God uh, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, right? Love God. Uh, Secondly, though, it says the divine side is who are called according to his purpose. The mentality of a believer, the mentality of a believer is to walk with the Lord. And we have to understand both sides of this as we do. Uh, so when we look at this, we have to look at what is the regulating factor or the pro- prothesis uh, of this. What is the purpose? It says, for this purpose. Okay, Look at the very last word in verse 28. And then we're going to tie it all together and we'll see some things um, as far as the translation. The word there for purpose is prothesis. Uh, pro means before. And thesis, anybody ever write a thesis? Know what the main word that goes with a thesis is? What do you think about this subject? And you're writing out your thoughts. That's the thesis. So it's before thought. In other words, God had a predetermined plan or an intelligent design for all mankind. And part of that, he had an understanding of the repercussions of the sin nature, the repercussions of things that went in life, and he had a purpose for all of us. And sometimes that purpose is not going to be written on a blank piece of paper for you and mailed to you through the U.S. mail or however you may get letters and tell this is what you are to do in life and be in life. But your purpose is what? To be conformed to the image of Christ as a believer. So here's what verse 28 says. Through a different translation. You can read yours and look at it. So I'm going to read what I've translated in the fullness and we'll... A couple more things we'll say, and we'll go back to Joseph for a few minutes. For we emphatically know that God works together continually for and in the direction of good. And that's how what God defines it as, to them who love him on the human side. So we're loving him. That's one of the things of our basis of love is what? We've accepted Christ as our Savior, right? We have a relationship with him. And who are called according to his intelligent design. 
Um, so that's kind of what that verse says. It's not a problem with God to take all these various tro- tro- troubles and trials and bring them together because he has an intelligent design. All these things are, are for design purposes. And you say, why did God design it as such? Well, if you read enough of his word, one of the things we do, a mature believer sees God's hands involved in all circumstances in life. Can you see God's hand in your life in everything? Uh, last couple of weeks, if you have any money in the market, the market's kind of tumbled. And you say, oh my goodness, what's, I'm not going to make it. And in 1929, a lot of people didn't want to make it, and they jumped out windows and did all sorts of crazy things. But if they would have kept those stocks that they had in 1929, they'd be running for president with the billions of dollars they had. They'd be spending surplus income. But what they did is they were looking at what? The circumstances, not God. They were looking at the things that were happening. But today we often look in circumstances, and we get overwhelmed because we're focused on the immediate and we're not focused on the primary, and the primary is God. And one of the things we know for a believer that is growing and mature, they see how God is working it out for his good. Write that in there, not my good, because your good and God's good doesn't always equal. You know? And some of you all are probably pretty much like me, and you want to make deals with God so it works out for your good, and now you're defining what is good for you, right? Uh, I see a few of you drinking coffee in here this morning. Nothing wrong with that, but all of you probably have different flavors in coffee. And you say, this is a really good cup of coffee. Well, I'm waiting for heaven because God's going to have a really good cup of coffee for me because I haven't found one except in two places that I thought was good. But you may think, man, that's a strong cup of mud, you know. Uh, We all define good differently. That's what I'm trying to say. But God has only one definition for good. And immature believers see the circumstances of life and are overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. This is called Counseling 101. Because most of you may at some point go through something in life and let me seek a counselor that will help me through this. Let me help me. And know what they end up doing? They focus on you and your problem. God's not focusing on you and your problem. God's focusing you on Him. Now, um, I know a couple have run track in here. I ran track once. I learned one lesson from running track. You run as hard and as fast as you can to the goal. If you turn your head and look at the people running with you or turn your head totally to see who's how far the guy is behind you, you're either going to end up on your face or end up in last. Or you may end up in last because you're the slowest and looking at everybody passing you. That's a whole different subject. But what happens in life, we want to look at the things in life and not focus on the goal and the goal and finisher and... Uh, of our, an author of our faith is Jesus. Have, do we have our eyes on the Lord through things? And only you could determine those things. Uh, so Joseph did. Joseph saw how God's arrangement of all things worked out for God's good. Joseph saw God when he was thrown into the pit. Joseph saw God when he was in prison. Joseph saw God when he was in his position. Notice I put P's there so you can remember it. From the pit to the prison to his position, he only saw God. He didn't say, wow, look how I looked out. I went from nothing, almost dead as a kid, and I became second in command in the whole Egyptian empire. Whoa, ain't I good? Because we would, you know, we'd say, see, God is working it out for my good because look how much power I have. And Joseph was saying, God worked it out for his good because he had me here for a specific purpose. 
See, Joseph could have lashed out with wrath towards his brothers because he had the correct... But, let me say it this way. He could have lashed out in, in what we call, which is kind of interesting, because if we get to it in the second class, we're going to talk about a little bit about uh, retaliation. Could Joseph... Well, let's, let me ask the question differently. Did Joseph have every right to retaliate on his brothers? And we'd say, yeah, he had the right to do that. Did he have the power to do it? Absolutely he had the power to do it. But he didn't because he had the... Here's the difference. He had the rec, right and... Uh, well, let's do it. He had the correct theology. Joseph lined up with theology, not what we would call man's thinking. So when we're going through life... Uh, we have to have the correct theology, and I think the key to all this is, do we understand God is in charge of everything? So we go back to Romans 8, 8, 28, and it says, we know that God is in charge of all things. We could even say that instead of causes. God is in charge of all things, so he can work those things together toward his good. We would call that what? The sovereignty of God. In this case, God is working out things in his life, in our lives, for his good. Uh, Did Joseph make uh, such decisions uh, that he... um, Let me, again, rephrase myself, because I'm thinking as I'm doing this, so it reads better and understands. When Joseph was in uh, those different arenas of circumstances in his life, uh, how did he make those decisions? He was 17 to probably about 30-something. How did he make those decisions that were would align with God's thinking, not his thinking? This is real easy. He was His mind was filled with God and God's Word. And here's the interesting thing is, Joseph didn't have any of it in his hands. So what he acquired, he soaked himself with. He had a rapport with God, and he understood mainly, and, 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 and along with that, his mindset was God was in control. From the day uh, the Bible opens up that we meet Joseph, to the time the Bible closes, Joseph had God in mind, because what's the first thing he said to, that was passed on to the children of Israel? Make sure my body gets out of Egypt and gets to the promised land. Who's his eyes focused on? Does it really matter where your body's buried? Please answer me that. That does not matter. It did to Joseph because Joseph knew his place was not in Egypt and incarcerated or entombed with Egyptians. He knew his land and that promise was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He needed to be with his people. Now, obviously, the second he died, he was absent from the body. We know that. But Joseph's saying this is keeps the people focused on what God's priority is and God's priority for the nation of Israel was that land. Kind of get what I'm saying? I think that's important for us to see. Um, so let's repeat for a second uh, some of the things that the, I call it the stuff went, that Joseph went through. This, you know what I think is interesting? And I learn this the older I get. The things we went through that we were having so much turmoil in our lives uh, when we were at, certain, at that point, and we look back now and go, really? That was it? I'm good. Prayerfully, those things are maturing us, and when we look back, we say, Pfft, can't believe I either acted this way or I was overwhelmed by that or such and such. But but and then you can say, did God? This is real good. Did God control everything, all things, so that they worked out for His good? And if we can say yes, look forward to when something happens, God will still do the same thing. You with me? 
Because God is what? I think I said this Wednesday night. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's very consistent. Uh, I was talking to Leonard, I think, before church, and I said, I wish the weather here was consistent. And he says to me, this is the Midwest, you get what you get. So every day, you know, whatever the weather is, that's what you get. I'm Okay. But with God, you get the same thing all the time. God never changes. So if God's had a consistent pattern of doing things, and he says, this is the way I do things, nothing's going to change it. You with me? So here's the stuff Joseph went through. And you don't have to turn to it. I'm just going to read them in the order I wrote them down. And it's probably not everything. Uh, his brothers hated him. His brothers hated him. I don't know what it is to have, and we probably can't include Benjamin in this because I don't think he was old enough for the hate, um, but at least ten of his brothers despised him to the point that they wanted him dead. And then the Bible goes on, not only did his brothers hate him, but his brothers hated him even more, it says. So I don't know how you escalate, escalate hatred to even more. I don't know. I don't know, how that, I don't know what that would call a super hatred, uh, a vehement hatred. So they went from, you know, a, a hatred to escalated hatred. Um, and the first thing you, you say, how do you, how do you live through that? How do you survive that? And there was a, if you know this, at this time, other than Benjamin, he was the youngest in the family, and you're getting all this cascaded down at you. And when there's a, a group of people or band of people that are against you, it just it's constant barragement. Um, and a distance has grown. You. I don't know about you all. I hate distance in family. You don't want that. Uh, thirdly, they, these brothers now took took time to plot with each other against him. How, how does how's Joseph handling this so far? What's he doing? Well, I, I don't see Joseph whining in Scripture. Why me, God? Uh, you almost matter-of-factly see Joseph just going through it, it being done to him. He's not passive. He's not laying down like a doormat, but he knows there's, well, how is he going to fight this? But he does know God is with him. Okay? Fourthly, they threw him into a pit, um, sold him as a slave. At 17, this is, this is what's happening to him. He's already lost his mother. His mother's died. Um, so at 17, I think, I think as I look at this, and knowing my nature as a person, I've got enough, uh, enough, Ammunition to retaliate. Okay? And the things that Joseph will go through, future to this in the Bible, biblical account, he can still blame on his brothers because his brothers put him in that predicament. You understand that, right? How many people have said, I just can't help how I feel? Ever heard that statement? That's a lie from the pits of hell. You can help how you feel. That's absolutely, when you hear that, that's nonsense. Because you can. You can help how you feel. Because you've got to control yourself, control your thoughts, and the only way you can is with doctrinal content that's applied to your life. And, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, a, and I'm a big proponent of Bible study because we're doing it here. Bible study helps you gain God's perspective on things in life. So in order to think God's thoughts after him, you've got to spend time in his word. How does God want you to perceive the things of life? How you feel, how you feel is always controlled, or the controlling factor in how you feel is usually the variety of circumstances you go through and all the wrong choices you make during those circumstances of life. That, that's, 
your feeling barometer. You understand what I'm saying? So you're going through something and you react wrong or you do something that uh, wants to alleviate that. Uh, there's drug addicts that say, you know, if I take this drug, I won't feel the pain I've done. So they take a drug and they take a drug and, and then that drug doesn't work anymore. They got to do what? Take something stronger or more of it. To, they're anesthetizing themselves to the decisions they made instead of going to Lord, working out their forgiveness and, and growing to maturity if they're a believer of coming to Christ. Uh, Joseph, because I'm going to say this, anybody that walks up to me and say, well, Joseph's a special case. God, God did this, so Joseph, he knew Joseph would make good decisions. Really? I... I know very few 17-year-olds that are really good at making decisions, but when you see a godly 17-year-old, they can make good decisions. It's not that hard. What would God want me to do in this circumstance? Is God control of this circumstance or not? And what can I do to change it? You know? Um, should I do things that God says don't do? Now, first of all, God says, Vengeance in mind, saith the Lord, right? So in that circumstance, you take vengeance. No. But are there circumstances we should protect ourselves. Absolutely. Someone's breaking into your house, you don't have to say, quote, you know, oh, there's a verse in my house that says, vengeance is mine, say it to the Lord, let him come in and do it. No! You do not do that. That has nothing to do with that. Okay? You protect the things you're supposed to protect. Um, so anyway, Joseph, Joseph's choices were determined by his thoughts, which were filled with, with knowledge of knowing God's hands were on everything. Do you see God's hands in everything? That's a good way to walk through life, right? I see God's hands uh, on everything. No, and only knowledge leads you to the ability to control yourself. Because believe it or not, within a few minutes, I'm going to go into a subject called biblical understanding of self-control. Uh, but I'm going to say this. The understanding of how to control yourself has to be taught. It's a learned thing. It's not a given. So if you're not in control of things and life seems out of control and you'll say things like, I don't know what's going on, things are happening and I just seems like I've lost all basis, all touch with reality or whatever, slow down, go learn some self-control. Now, self-control is different than selfishness. I want to make sure we're clear on that. Selfishness is in the middle, if you pull out the three, three letters in there, you'll say sin is what selfishness is about. Self-control is getting yourself under control and temperate so that you can lead life knowing God is in control. Does this sound like a counseling session? feels like it. Sorry. There is a shingle that's hung up called Bible Church. Realize that, right? That's what we're doing here. We're, we're learning God's understanding of things. Do uh, You know, Paul learned this in jail. He was responsible for his reaction while he was in jail. And when Paul was jailed, instead of getting mad and angry at God or things that are happening, because he was what? Think about this. Paul was promoting the gospel of grace. And God has him locked up. And most of us would say, Jeez, God, thanks a lot. I'm helping you. And instead of giving me the keys to the kingdom kind of thing and making me uh, well taken care of everywhere, you put me in prison. And Paul says, well, I'm in prison. What am I going to do here? Well, it's a good time to write. And Paul wrote Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians. And we today would call those what? The prison epistles, right? And how much doctrinal content are in those prison epistles? Isn't that kind of interesting? So God puts Paul in a place to calm his spirit, give him some time to write. 
Um, and that's interesting. Um, Paul's comforts, Paul's rights were violated. Paul was a, a Roman citizen. He wasn't handled as such. Uh, but God gives him truth in the face of his uh, deprivation and the sinful acts against him. God still gives him the opportunity to do something. So go with me since we're talking about it. Go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. So we talked about Joseph. We've got a good picture last week and a few minutes this morning on Joseph and how Joseph dealt with circumstances in life. And he's, remember, he's writing Philippians from jail, from, the, from a Roman prison. We're going to just go to verse 8, Philippians 1, 8, and see what Paul, Paul understands by being in prison. Now, if you ever know anything, I think it's 2 Corinthians where Paul goes through the litany of things that happened to him. Paul had a bunch of things happen in his life, but now he's in prison. He says, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with an affection of Jesus Christ. So what's he looking at? He's looking at those he can minister to when he gets out of jail. And and this I pray, this is my prayer. Uh, then it comes with a hint clause that for this purpose that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the, uh, the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So what's Paul looking at? He's looking at what's happening now is his ministry is to continue even if it's through writing and his affection for these people is through Christ and that Christ is what? Coming back. That's a good, good perspective of life, right? Verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we could see his focus is on Christ. Yes or no? Those verses. Then verse 12 says, Now I want you to know, this is, I want you to gain this knowledge, brethren, that my circumstances, and we could say his multiplicity of circumstances, or circumstances piled on circumstances, because Paul had a lot of things happening to him up until this point. Not only physically, well, mostly physically to add it up, but he also had people that hated him, threw him out of town. He, he had an interesting uh, uh, phase of his life here. He says that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul knew that what he was going through pushed the gospel. You know, Paul wasn't in prison saying, oh my, oh my, can't believe I'm here. Do, oh, why did the Lord do this to me? He's saying, hey, there's a prison guard, there's a prison guard, there's a prison guard. You know what they all need? They all need the gospel. And the gospel is going out to Rome and the uh, parts of the Roman Empire that were controlled and probably sent out by Roman prisoners, I mean Roman prison guards, Right? Kind of an interesting thing. But Paul says these circumstances, so verse 13, <clears throat> we'll read, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. That means this is why I'm imprisoned. I'm imprisoned for the gospel of Christ. You want to know what the gospel of Christ is? You want to know what the gospel of Christ is? And he's telling all these people while he's imprisoned, and people are going out and saying, I heard this gospel from a prisoner named Paul. So Paul understood that God was just another opportunity. Do we take things in life that God has given us for opportunity to show other people how Christ is working in our life, how God has worked us through circumstances, that things happen but it doesn't matter in the course of things uh, in life because these things are what? 
temporary. You know, if you looked at Paul's circumstances, we were to pull out all of Paul's circumstances in life, what would we say as we as uh, people, just general people, look at the circumstances, what would we, ex- what would we expect from Paul's life? What would, we expe- what would we expect his reactions to be? Well, here's the interesting thing. The gospel moved on. How could we ever say that about anybody? They were imprisoned and the gospel, mo- and the gospel moved on because of their imprisonment. You know, uh, now there are people that have come to the Lord in prison and changed and done things. And I think, uh, even though I don't agree with his theology that much, but Charles Colson was a good example of somebody who came to the Lord in prison and then gave the gospel out while he was in prison. But uh, he didn't write four books in the New Testament either. So, uh, but, but Paul's four-year imprisonment, God was able to put uh, all of Paul's circumstances together and to bring about what we would call the unexpected some of the greatest literature in the Bible. Man's intentions towards Paul, man's intentions towards Joseph was absolute evil. Family, in one case, and familiar faces in the other case. All coming against people, and they meant it for evil. Right? So the things in your life, some things you may go through, and people may intend evil. But God turned it out to his good. Look what came out of both of these things. A nation, in Joseph's case, was saved, and a nation was brought back, even though they had to flee Egypt, but they were brought back as a nation. Israel was not a nation when they went into captivity. There were 70 people, but they came out a nation. And God, in that (coughs) wilderness period, gave them a constitution which to live by as a nation in it. And with Paul, we've, we've got... Uh, the writer of the New Testament, where most of the New Testament not was all written in prison, but Paul wrote what we would consider a considerable part of the New Testament. If you took Paul's writings and Luke's out, you'd have a pamphlet about this thick. Just think about that for a minute. And Paul influenced who? Luke. They traveled together immensely. Uh, So, let's shift gears for a second. And let me ask you a question. Who controls your life? Or what runs your life? What is the the controlling factor of your life? Um, what and and along with that, what deserves what deserves your priority? <coughs> and as we talk about these two issues, did the thing that deserves priority get it? So if you were to write a priority list, did it get it? Did it get the priority place it needed? And if someone's running your life or something's running your life, you got to ask the question, why and how is it, and why are you allowing that or what is you, what are you allowing from that situation? So we're going to look at some verses. Go with me to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24:24. 24, 24. And we're just going to look at this idea in the Bible of self-control. And well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get an understanding that the word self-control is a biblical word. How's that? Okay? So we're going to look it up and say, here's where it is in the Bible. Uh, and then we're going to go back and, and, and discuss this a little bit uh, in, in the time we have left. Uh, Acts 24, 24 says, Some days later, Felix arrived with Drusella, his wife, who was a Jewish, 
uh, Jewish way and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, those are interesting subjects, isn't it? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Can you, can you get those three subjects? What, what's, what needs to be done is you need to be righteous. What needs to be maintained is your self-control, and what's coming is the judgment. Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. That's a bad thing, because he says, Well, tomorrow's always better to hear the gospel. Tomorrow's not good to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel, because why? You may not get it tomorrow. I don't know about any of you. Love you all, but none of you are guaranteed even this afternoon. Okay? So don't put off, uh, especially uh, an interaction with the gospel, until tomorrow. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. So I wanted us to see there in Acts that he's kind of looking at the three, three phases of what you need in life. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. So how are you doing? If you've, if you've met Christ and you have Christ as your Savior, your righteousness, you have righteous, His righteousness in you. Now in life you have to be self-control. And how's the judgment to come? Are you worried about the judgment to come? Romans 8, 1 says there is now no condemnation, right? But there are some people that need to be really fearful of the judgment to come. Where was I at? Galatians 5, 23. Well, start in verse 22, so we know what this is talking about. But the fruit of the Spirit, which is kind of interesting. Everybody says these are fruits of the Spirit, and I want to single them out. The word fruit there is, is singular. So this is the fruit of the Spirit. So you guys say, and this is how I kind of look at it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and love produces the rest. Or you can say that it's all one package. So we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, if you have those things, do you need a biblical law? And I would say, no, you don't. You, you, you're living life in a law, a law way because you're not going to break the law. And that's the fruit that the Spirit produces in us. Second Peter. And we'll, we're going to discuss all these, so those of you that got a lot of questions, keep them. They're, it's coming. And I don't want you to think of fruit of the Spirit with your arms standing straight out like this, and you pushing fruit out. And I'm going to do these. It's, the, it's what the Spirit will produce through you. Okay? Where is that? 2 Peter 1, 6. And in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. And we're going to take some time to go through that because I think it's a, a better understanding than the way it's translated in the New American Standard there, too. But we're going to, we're going to take more time in, in this verse than any of the other ones. And, and Titus chapter 1, Titus 1 is the last occurrence we'll deal with. And I don't know if we're going to really deal with that because by the time we get to here, I think you'll get an idea of self-control. But we'll see how that goes. Okay? So Titus 1.8. And these are the places in the New Testament this word appears. Okay? Titus 1.8 says, well, verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, uh, not pugnacious. For those that don't know what that means, a fighter, a fist fighter, you know, uh, not fond of sword gain, 
but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-control, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So it's telling you what an overseer should be like, those ruling over the church. Now it is a biblical word. I'm going to give you a little introduction to next week's class. Uh, the word, is, if you're writing it down, is E.G., which is the preposition on front, and since it's in, the, it's it, if you're doing the preposition, it's E-N, but since it's a Greek construct, it's going to be E-G, K-R-A-T-E-I-A. So I'm going to do it again. E-G, K-R-A-T-E-I-A. Ekratia. And basically, uh, E-N means in, and kratos, the, the other part of the root, kratos, K-R-A-T-O-S, is power, might, and strength. So, what, was it, what does it mean? It means, the Greek word basically means controlling power that is from inside. Controlling power that is, not, that is inside. It is not, and please understand this, it is not willpower. It's self-control. Uh, and and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go through that because willpower... Uh, is given to us in Romans 6, willpower, and basically we have the power of the cross. We don't have willpower. Um, the responsibilities in the will, uh, where we say, let not the sin nature rule. Okay, that's the deciding factor. But that's not the same as self-control. So keep willpower out of the component of self-control. Uh, so, I'm going to end this class with a couple of nitty, uh, nifty little statements. So, then you can go get coffee and be prepared for next class. Uh, biblical Christianity says you are to be in control of your life. Even though things may be out of control that are happening on the exterior, you are to be in control of your own life. Nobody else. Now, we, we like to get uh, counsel from various areas, even people on the street. We meet somebody and we want to tell them our life story because maybe they have some insight to help us through. Stop that. <laughs> Because most people have their own insights for their own issues, and they, we want to be biblical, okay? But the, but the Bible says you are to be in control of your life. It is not a, not a self-effort that makes it in the Christian life, but it's what God produces in you that makes it self-control. That's the Christian life. Uh, and we're going to talk about, one of the issues we will talk about is how does self-control relate to the Spirit's control. Because I'm so sure all of you say, well, the Spirit's in control of my life. I'm not. You are to have self-control. The two don't oppose each other. They work together. Okay? Um, so we've looked at the four verses that we wanted to deal with uh, that will bring us to this point. And next week we're going to pick up with some uh, understandings of self-control and some Misconcept, mis, uh, misunderstood concept, or or even misused definitions. What is what does it mean to be self-controlled? And that's what we'll pick up with next week. Let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you for this time as we've uh, discussed some interesting issues about the will of man. Uh, we're coming close to the conclusion of these these classes. We again thank you for this time and pray that all this has gone into a, a place that we can use this in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.